Good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you this morning. This morning at the early service, we sang the following words, Thou Son of God, eternal word, who heaven and earth's foundations laid, upholding by thy word and power the universe thy hands have made. I love those words. I love to be reminded of the fact that God underpins everything, that he is everywhere, and yet, as Christians, as theists, we also know that he is somewhere and that he is a person. We have a personal God in our personal faith. And as we move through this universe, we know that he never leaves us. He is wherever we are. Not only is he wherever we are geographically, he is wherever we are emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, in every aspect of our being. He is right there. That's a tremendous comfort to have that kind of foundation, foundational truth based on the ultimate foundation, which is God himself. <clears throat> Let's um, quieten our hearts for a moment and pray. We thank you, Father, that we can know of your love. We have reflected this morning on your majesty and upon redemption. These things are of you and from you, and you have brought them to us that we might appreciate your majesty and your redemption. May our reflections this morning cause us to worship you, to kneel down in our hearts and to acknowledge your greatness and the redemption that is ours in Christ. If there was anyone here who does not know in their own hearts about that redemption, may your spirit do his own work in bringing that person to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 19. What a wonderful psalm. It has a very natural um, way to be divided. And it is a marvelous thing to walk with the psalmist through these three clear divisions of this psalm. We begin looking out into what the psalmist calls the firmament and thinking about the sun in its course. And then he moves us to the consideration of truth and the word of God. These are ineffable things. And then he finally reflects inwardly upon his own soul and his relationship to the God who made everything over his head and under his feet and all around him. I always like to think that the psalmist was never far in his mind, though he sat on a king with great servants and riches and power all around him, it was never far from his heart and mind that once he was a boy, once he was a young man sitting on the grass watching the sheep outdoors, looking around, worshiping God and looking at creation. I think this frequently comes out in the Psalms. So these are the three divisions. There is a cosmos out there. That is a word that is familiar to you. There is a logos everywhere. And it is, in fact, recorded. In our New Testaments, in the first chapter of John, Logos is simply translated word. Word. 
but it is a word which has more meaning than uh, a printed word. It, in fact, extends to the concept of meaning itself, meaning itself. And Jesus Christ is true meaning itself and himself. He is the true meaning. And the third word you might not know, but I needed something that rhymed, <laughs> so I struggled around. The, um, the New Testament word for layman, regular guy, you're not gonna like this, I'm telling you right now. The word in the New Testament for a regular run-of-the-mill rank-and-file guy like me is idiotes. <laughs> Just your average idiot. And um, idios is uh, referring to the, the inner person. And um, I won't get into its use by a man named Sigmund Freud, but that was um, a very significant uh, but very, very worldly advance in the realm of psychiatry and psychology that is now over a hundred years old. And uh, not all of it was good. This is biblical psychology. This is biblical psychiatry, if you like. The cosmos. Here's a shepherd boy, you know, in his heart perhaps, or perhaps in reality when he penned this, Psalm 19, out in the pastures, given uh, one of the lowest jobs in society. It was so low that he, his brothers tended to even forget he was out there. Oh, yeah, we have a brother. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. what about him? Well, he's nothing. Why, why, why even think about him? Maybe we should think about him. He ended up defeating Goliath. But they weren't thinking about him at all at the beginning because he was out in the pasture. And as a shepherd, he would have watched the sun going through its course every day. The tremendous power of the sun. And this psalm beautifully expresses how that power, that moving power goes through the sky repeatedly, reliably, gloriously. It does so many things. It warms our bodies and comforts us. It causes water to evaporate so that it can rain. It causes plants to uh, uh, undergo or to use a chemical process called photosynthesis, which is the, has been the study of tremendous amount of research. How do, you, how do you translate a photon of the sun's energy? It's 93 million miles away. It took nearly 10 minutes for that photon to get from that fusional furnace down to that blade of grass, and that blade of grass then uses photosynthesis to convert it into food energy. We're still trying to figure this out. Marvelous, marvelous. Someone might say, well, you know, uh, this is a, a, a primitive mind. He's thinking about the sun going through, the, of course it goes through the sky. He's thinking about how it does that with, with glory and power. He's easily impressed. He's a man of 3,000 years ago. That's quite an accurate number for David. He's easily impressed. Well, you proud scientist, what do you know now? You don't want to believe in God. You don't want to believe that this is part of his creation and part of his plan. What do you now know? You have a Hubble telescope to play with. You have tunneling, scanning electron microscopes, a building next to mine. You can look at 
the vastness of creation in a way that has never been possible before. You are more accountable for what you are observing, not less accountable. You have no right to dismiss that boy for his wonder at creation. Why aren't you wondering at creation? When I was a grad student, I had to do an assignment on order of magnitude analysis in order to come up with a governing equation within the realm of fluid mechanics. And order of magnitude analysis means that some things just are too small and unimportant in this context, we throw them out the window. But these five things we have to keep because they're going to interact. Order of magnitude analysis is a formal mathematical procedure that's very useful in narrowing down what you really need to think about. And, you know, it's a common um, expression. Um, people say, oh, uh, maybe they might say something like, um, Turo is uh, on the order of, uh, help me out here, 90 kilometers from Halifax? Don't say that. At least don't say it around me. Order of magnitude, that means that you're saying that, you're not saying that it's between 85 and 95. If that's what you meant, you say about, okay? About 90 kilometers, please say that instead. Order of magnitude analysis means that it's, it's uh, somewhere between nine and 900. Factors of 10, people who like to sound educated say on the order of, please don't do that. Order of magnitude means a, a, a new factor of 10. And when we look at the, the, the range of possible order of magnitude in the universe, our sun is 10 to the 11th meters from us. These quasars, which are believed to be the result of colliding galaxies, entire galaxies colliding and forming super black holes that emit a very, very specific type of radiation. These are the most distant things that can be detected. The furthest one is apparently 29 billion light years away. I, I learned in grade nine or so that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Okay, do that for 29 billion years. That's how far away this most distant quasar is. And it's like this huge beacon lighthouse sending out these, this signal that's very unique and characteristic of the presence of a large black hole in the middle of that collision. Andromeda Galaxy is familiar too because it has these spiral arms. It's 10 to the 22 meters away. Solar system diameter is about 10 to the 13, and so on. Guess what you get to be in terms of order of magnitude? Zero. You're about 10 to the zero. Two times 10 to the zero. You're about two meters high. That makes you order zero. But this is most interesting in creation. It means that with modern technology, we can go up to positive 26 and down to, in fact, less than an electron if you're thinking about Higgs boson, which was in the media in the past year, it's far, far smaller. I don't know if they can even attach a diameter to it. 10 to the 26 down to 10 to the minus 15, 41 orders of magnitude. Isn't it interesting that we are kind of in the middle and able to observe both ends of this vast cosmos, not only vast out that way, but vast inside, smaller, 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 unimaginably smaller. The diameter of a hydrogen atom 
compared to the little, it's just a proton and electron, that's all it is, it's the simplest element, it's the number one on the periodic table. That, that little, that little, we always thought you know, it looks like a solar system. Actually, that's not a bad comparison. When you look at the, the diameter of the Earth, I thought I had a laser pointer in my hand, I don't. When you look at the diameter of the Earth, 10 to the 7, and the diameter of the solar system, 10 to the 13th, yeah, that's five or six, and now the, down to a hydrogen atom is five or six orders of magnitude to get down to the size of an electron from the diameter of the atom. There's a huge empty space in something incredibly tiny. It's amazing. It's completely amazing. I want to speak a bit about the fine-tuning of the universe. There are, under grand unified field theory, there are four forces that uh, can be present in the universe. Gravity, holding you down in your chair, holding me on the floor. Electromagnetics, which has to do with electrostatics and magnetic forces. And then there are two that are less familiar to people, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. The strong nuclear force means that a proton and a neutron, such as in helium, uh, don't fly apart, the nuclear strong force. Electrons, on the other hand, their behavior is affected by what's known as the weak nuclear force. And these four forces, it has been the subject of tremendous effort, including the search for Higgs boson, to try to come up with a set of math equations that unifies everything back to one governing set of equations that manifests itself in four different ways. And we're not quite there yet, but, but because only three of them have been brought, brought back to a single set of math. But the, the interesting thing is you can look at the fine-tuning of the universe. There's many examples in books like this. God's undertaker. Has science buried God? Many interesting examples, some of which I'm sharing with you today. If you compare, when looking at the issue of the fine-tuning of the universe, how things are operating, if the nuclear strong force in a ratio to the electromagnetic force was plus or minus 10 to the 16th, 1 over 10 to the minus uh, 16, or 1 over 10 to the 16th, by that much, if we have messed with it, if we had changed it, by that infinitesimal amount, there would be no stars at all to look at in the sky. Zero. Which means we wouldn't have a star, which means there wouldn't be an ecliptic, which is the path of the sun. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You only have to change the ratio of those two fundamental forces by 10 to the minus 16th, and you get a great big nothing out of the universe. God has tuned it, that constant and many other constants, to a very, very precise value. The scientist is not less accountable, he's more accountable. I'm mainly using Psalm 19 this morning, but the other one that I have to use because I want to examine matters of the inner vastness, the tininess, and of the vastness. And we love these two verses from Psalm 139. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. This is a man who's trying to express the fabrication of him himself as a being, using language, poetry, Hebrew poetry, written 3,000 years ago. It's wonderful, and it's true. These thoughts are so true. 
we are incredibly made to the point that when you, the more you find out, you start to go, oh, that's just scary. That's just too amazing. I, I'm, I'm completely in awe. That's where the psalmist was in his heart and mind. I want to share with you some details. Not that I'm a biochemist. <clears throat> About 100,000 proteins make you up. The, the business end of what makes you go as a biochemical engine is about 100,000 different kinds of proteins. You need about 300 amino acids to make one protein. And all amino acids are either, oddly enough, interestingly enough, left-handed or right-handed. In fact, it's interesting that left-handedness and right-handedness pervades other aspects of the universe, in, such as uh, electromagnetic field theory. The genius of electromagnetic field theory was a born-again Christian named James Clerk Maxwell, a good Scot, and he, and, and he developed the governing partial differential equations for electromagnetic field theory. You can't design an antenna without the work of that born-again uh, Christian. Left-handedness, right-handedness. These little amino acids have to be left-handed for life on Earth. So this is the picture I grabbed from a Google search, uh, one amino acid, the upper part is the amino part, the reddish part, the lower part, the NH2 is the acid part, and the big R is basically a receptor, and it needs to be a peptide bond. And you need 300 of them in a row connected together that are left-handed. Now, there's a piece of terrible, lying propaganda in every high school biology book that's out there in the public system. A 22-year-old graduate student named um, Ure and, and his advisor, Stanley Miller, Miller and Ure, I can't remember which one was the grad student, 22-year-old 22 22 grad student. So they, they mix up some gook, put some gook together. Let's heat it up, add some electricity, stir it up. You know. Guess what we got? Amino acids. So in the primordial soup at the beginning of creation, uh, which is not creation, it's by accident, uh, when this primordial soup is being stirred up with these basic substances and add a little bit of energy, we got amino acids. This is proof that life can evolve from chemicals. Rubbish! Absolute propaganda. Do you know why? Just for starters, there's like five reasons why. I'll just give you the biggie. When they looked in that mixture, they found both left-handed and right-handed amino acids. It didn't mention that. And the only ones that are any good for life on Earth are the left ones. Oh, somebody is supposed to pull out the left ones and just use those? Because when they're mixed up with the right-hand ones, they don't do anything, and they can't do anything. They can't form a protein. So what's some of the chances of this? Well. If you just want the left-handed ones and you're, say, you're picking, I'm 10. Flip a coin 10 times. Left, right, 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. What's the chances that you got 10 heads or 10 tails in a row picking the left-hand amino or the right-hand amino? You need the left one, by the way. So you need 10 heads. That's about a one in a thousand chance. Somebody says, you want to flip a coin 10 times and get 10 tails in a row? It's going to be about a one in a thousand chance that that's going to happen. Don't bet any money on it. It's not going to happen. Yeah, but you need 300 amino acids all left in order for this to work out. So 0.5 to the power 300 
is 10 to the minus 91. In other words, not going to happen. In addition, that letter R, the receptor, it needs to be a peptide bond, not a non-peptide bond. So you get a left, oh, no good, non-peptide bond, need a peptide receptor. 50-50 on that one too. So there's another 10 to the minus 91 thrown into the mix. And you need both. So now you have 2.4 times 10 to the minus 181 for you to pick out 300 left-hand amino acids that have a peptide bond receptor. Not very likely, extremely unlikely, essentially impossible. That's considerably more than the 41 orders of magnitude in the known universe by a factor of five. It is a ridiculous suggestion to say that this can happen by chance. So when we look at the four grand unified field theory forces, and how they are tuned, that's at the big scale. The sun is involved in these things, issuing solar storms and magnetic storms. Or we look at proteins of the 100,000 of them that you need in order to be a human being chemistry-wise. We can conclude, whether it's outer or inner, this universe is very finely tuned. And there's suddenly a shift. There's a shift from consideration of creation to consideration of meaning. What does it all mean? How does it apply to me? What is my benchmark? How do I under understand all of this? Here's how you understand it. Because the universe is more than chemistry. It is also moral. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. This is a, a man considering his inner person. He thinks about creation, and then his thought turns to his inner person, and he says, this concerns me. This concerns me. But I have God's revealed word to bring and to place against my soul to guide me, to teach me, to instruct me, to cleanse me. I hope that these things that are spoken of here in this psalm are within your own personal Christian experience. They need to be. They really need to be. Now, we actually go, the last two verses, a little bit more. It's interesting to think about ourselves, as I've said on a previous occasion in, in, in quoting Oswald Saunders. He points out that it is your natural, God-given orientation to look inward. Do you find yourself looking inward? Well, God wired you up to look inward. The other aspect that I shared with you is that when we exercise our God-given direction to look inward, we find that we cannot figure it out. It's guaranteed frustration. I don't know 
why I do everything that I do. Strange statement. Welcome to the human race. That is a God-given tendency and a God-given dilemma. I believe that it is given to us so that we will say, I am not enough. I can't get it. I am not enough morally. I am not enough intellectually. I'm not enough emotionally. To whom should I look? I should look to God. God made me. He made my DNA. He made my psychology. He wired my brain. He understands me. He is the one that I should look to when I find myself throwing my hands in the air when I look inward. That inward orientation. Isn't it interesting that the psalmist could say that he was afraid of being dominated by presumptuous sins. The root, uh, the root of this presumptuous, I looked it up, is high-handed. High-handed sin. Someone deals with you in a high-handed manner. Do you like it? You don't like it. When you sin against God in a high-handed manner, how offensive is that? High-handed sin against God. Fearful thing. Fearful thing to do. Here's a man whose heart and mind are tuned to God, and he says, help me never to do such a thing. Do you know why he can say that? Because he knows himself. You think, I don't know, me? High-handed sin against God? Never. You are wrong. I am capable of it. You are capable of it. We are all capable of high-handed sins against God because we are sinners. It is what we are. It is what we are. Whether or not we allow such things to become a dominion in our souls and to, to be dominant in our lives, that's another question. Inscrutable. As I've said, we, we don't completely fathom what is inside of ourselves, our psychology, our souls. We don't. Another reason to look above. Finally, inconsolable. I suspected something about the origin or etymology of that word, and sure enough, do you know the, 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 the name of our sun? Our star, our star that heats this place up, right, this planet, has a name. Astronomers have a name for it. A lot of people don't know that. Just like Sirius is a star and Betelgeuse is a star, our star actually has a name, and you're looking at it. It's inside the word inconsolable. Our star, the name of our star is Saul, S-O-L. And when you are inconsolable, according to the original Latin way of looking at things, it means even the warmth of the sun doesn't comfort you. You get no comfort even from the warmth of the sun. I love the warmth of the sun. I am kind of afraid of winter. I just love to be outdoors in the summer, as you know. That feeling of the warmth of the sun on your skin is good. But it's a, it's a very sense-based thing. It's almost like I'm lying there on the beach like an animal. Just like, you know, a lump on the beach. Oh, it feels good, feels good. Brain is off, turn off. Feels good. But you know, <clears throat> that approach to life that what I need to do is manage my comfort level by managing my comforts. That is a godless approach to life. 
you will, if that is your approach to life as to how to manage your various comforts, that's your key to being happy, happy, that is so empty. And there's nothing Christian about that. And I will tell you as well that if you know not the Lord and you're wondering why to bother with any of this, the day I submit will come in most cases where nothing will comfort you. There will be a sorrow in your life, the depths of which you have no idea how to deal with. What the world sometimes does is to get hammered drunk. That is, that I can't cope with my negative emotions. I'm gonna put myself out of my misery. That is sadly, sadly, extremely common in this province. As Mark Taylor was saying recently, very sad and very common and very ungodly. Put yourself out of your misery with alcohol or chemicals or something or a mixture thereof. There's a good way to wreck your chemistry. Sad. But the sobering thing is, it can happen. And in most of it, our lives, it does happen that we will get to that place where the sorrow, the issue, the problem is also beyond us. The warmth of the sun is not going to cut it. We can be inconsolable. But I digress. How can we be pure toward God? How can we live honestly toward God? How can we be, as it says here, upright, not letting these things have dominion over us, not letting transgression be great and ruining our innocence? Good question, good question. The world says that you are nothing more than a collection of chemical reactions and that the, the appearance of a personality, the appearance of a personality is actually a myth. Now I look down at Mark Swatsky and I say, there's no way in the world that's a myth. There is a personality. But there is no basis for that statement. There is no basis for saying that you are more than a collection of, of chemical reactions. At the tiniest, biochemical level up to the magnificence of the external reality, all the world has to say is that it's all material and the mediation between what's out there and what's in here is through my five senses and that's it. Is that how you're gonna live? Think about it. Is that viable? How does love fit into that? This is not a Christian worldview. External reality, there is both material and immaterial. There is the material and the God who made the material. In the internal realm, I am mind, soul, spirit, and if you know the Lord, the spirit of God with your spirit in the internal realm. What is the link between the two? This. This is the link between the two to make sense of everything. This is our touchstone and our benchmark. And I come back to my question. 
How and how and how? What about the meditation of your heart? What do you dwell on? What do you find yourself thinking about in quiet moments? Is it acceptable to God? I'm afraid to say mine is not. I catch myself. How? How? These are very good thoughts. They're from the Bible. They provide very pointed direction to us. But the way that this psalm ends is extremely important, and on this I will close. The how of it. It's the italics. It's the italics at the end. The last five words of the psalm, especially the last two. If you know the Lord, the Lord is your strength. He is the one that enables you. But that is predicated upon something. That is predicated upon the, the, the requirement that the Spirit of God dwells within you, which is a result of having been redeemed, having been born again, having been made one of his children, so that when the psalmist says, my Redeemer, it is the most personal statement. It applies to his inmost being. The Lord God who made everything from the vastness of space down to the innermost realms of the soul, he is the one that we individually need to be able to call Redeemer, Redeemer. To redeem means to, bought, to be bought back. You need to be bought back. You need to be brought into a personal relationship with Christ. To be able to say that the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins, is not a redeemer or merely an example. He is much, much more than those things. He needs to be your redeemer. You need to know that in the depths of your own heart. This morning, we had read to us Psalm 95 and verse 6 was emphasized this morning. It says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. From the vastness of space down to the amino acids that make you up, he is your maker. You need to be in a relationship with him so that this worship, this kneeling down that the psalmist refers to is actually part and parcel of your daily experience. experience. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And I want to remind you of a couple of verses from Philippians. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes this in Philippians 2.9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Over the earth, in the earth, under the earth. What I get from this passage 
is that every, when it says every knee shall bow, it literally means every knee shall bow. The question is, will you do it out of worship so that it is consistent with the kneeling in your heart that is part of your life? Or will you do it in fear because you don't know this God? And the next thing is judgment. How will you kneel? How will you kneel? I trust that this Thanksgiving weekend we can reflect on things like that, reflect on our Redeemer. I trust that the Lord Jesus Christ is known to you as your personal Redeemer. And if not, I would encourage you to talk to any of us about what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again, what it means to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for your redemption, for your salvation. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the maker of all things. We marvel, we marvel at creation so much that we can barely understand in what you have created. And yet what is more marvelous still is that the very word of God came and was born as a child in Bethlehem with one purpose, to go to the cross, to be our redeemer. That is truly marvelous. May we marvel at our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, this day, and may we be willing to share with others what we know of him. May we be able to be a people of joy and of worship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attention.